National Parks for the first all-digital landscape photography project. Uh, we hope you join us again next Thursday when Weston Neff, the Curator Emeritus of the Getty, will share work of early Western photographer Carlton Watkins, so more National Parks. Um, we're thrilled to have Steve with us tonight, along with his partner, Fiona McDonald. Um, Steve is one of Canon's Explorers of Light, and we're pleased that Canon helped make his visit possible as well. And of course, a special thanks to longtime member Tom Tischer uh, for making this entire series possible. And for those of you who didn't hear me last week, Tom is off to a railroad convention. Many of you who know Tom know that that's a passion of his, and so he rarely misses these talks, but he does love to travel, so a good mix with, with this lecture, but he's very disappointed to miss Steve's talk. Um, as a photographer, teacher, and designer, Steve Johnson has been teaching and working in photography since 1977, and in fact, heads off tomorrow up to the main media workshop to teach a two-week, um, two back-to-back, week-long workshops, um, so he continues very actively to teach. Um, his books include At Mono Lake, um, the criti critically acclaimed The Great Central Valley, California's Heartland, which we have in the store tonight, um, and then the 2006 Stephen Johnson on digital photography, which has received accolades far and wide. And I have to let you know, when I last counted, including this one, we only had six copies left. And that's pretty much what exists. So I don't want you to make a beeline out of the theater now. But you will want to be first in line in the store to, ca to, catch, it, uh, to catch that. Um, in 1999, Folio Magazine declared the publication of Steve's digital photographs in Life Magazine to be one of the top 15 critical events in magazine publishing in the 20th century. He was named a 2003 inductee into the Photoshop Hall of Fame, and in 2007, X-Rite named Steve as a founding member of their exclusive Colorado group of photographers and educators honored for their skills in color management. His work in digital photography has included software and product development for an impressive list of companies, and he's truly been a pioneer in the digital field. Uh, following tonight's talk, please join us in the cafe where Steve will be signing these books. Um, and we also, if you didn't have a chance in the lobby as you came in to see, Steve brought three of um, his prints with, uh, with him. So just glorious to see them in person. And we will have those in the cafe as well. So it is now my pleasure to introduce Steve Johnson. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks for the honor of your presence here tonight. Uh, thank you to the Eastman House for the honor of the invitation. It is truly a, a special privilege to be able to be in such a special museum and archive of both technology and the art of photography. It's the second time I've gone through uh, some of the technology archives that Todd was generous enough to spend some time with, and we looked at some of the photographic collection today. And it humbles me to a huge degree to be uh, speaking to you in this venue tonight. It's also a, a, an extraordinary privilege to be in Rochester speaking, because as I was working with, uh, uh, in the early days of digital photography with many friends from Eastman Kodak, many of whom are here tonight, I felt like we were collaborating on the invention of digital photography. I was being a sometimes pain-in-the-butt critical outside voice. But that sense of commitment to image quality that Kodak brought to the process, that sense of imagination of what digital imaging could be, was something that I felt palpably with working with so many people from Kodak. One of my dear friends, Pete Susi, is here, who actually took this opening photograph when he went with me out to Acadia National Park in Maine. I think Pete actually wrote the patent on attaching thumbnails to raw data that Kodak still enjoys revenues from today. So it's an honor to be here with you, too, Pete. Thank you for being here. And I saw some other people that are old friends off in the distance, and I'll look forward to talking to you uh, a little bit later. I can tell you that my journey in photography has been a series of unexpected developments, sometimes from falling completely in love with a place and trying to figure out what I could do to make a difference for it, other times exploring my own, own homeland in ways that I had no imagining that would uh, ever, there'd ever be an opportunity to do that. But I do, in this age of digital photography and Photoshop and 
manipulation of images, want to start out with a few assertions, and one of which is that I think photography still does mean writing with light and does not inherently mean anything to do with pushing pixels around. And I think photography as a pixel-based medium is maybe no different fundamentally than photography as a silver-based medium, but I am not at all an enthusiastic manipulator of my photographs in Photoshop. In fact, the integrity of the image is sacred to me, and the, nothing will ever be taken out of a photograph that was really there, nor will anything ever be added to a photograph to try and so-called enhance the image. In fact, I've considered the word enhancement of my photographs to become a definite pejorative. And uh, for me, the fundamental truth that a photograph writes with light and essentially captures a truth in front of the lens is a fundamental point of departure for me in everything that I do. And I believe deeply that photography's magic is fundamentally based on that innate feeling we all have when we look at what we think is a photograph and we assume that there was something there that was captured and that we're now being witness to. That is the wonder that makes me love photography. That is the fundamental belief that makes me use Photoshop as a darkroom, not as a reality alteration tool, and that makes me believe that the future of photography is rich and uh, deep, almost beyond belief, because as I've seen the veracity of our photographic tools increase over time, I can only anticipate that those capabilities will continue to grow and expand in ways that I can barely imagine in the same sense that when I was burning and dodging a complex image in the darkroom, I could never imagine the kind of control I have in Photoshop to precisely render what the camera actually saw. And so I'm both delighted, excited, disturbed, anticipating, willing to continue to work hard, but breathing in deep that fundamental reason that I got involved in photography as a landscape photographer, that opportunity to be a witness to wonder. And my ethic that runs through everything that I do is rendering a faithful rendition of that wonder. I'm not interested in the print as being something different than what I saw. I'm interested in that print trying to imitate to the greatest degree the technology, my talent, and the capabilities of the medium can render. My work has largely been organized into big photographic projects. I'll go through two of them real briefly here before I get to the National Parks Project. The first one about Mono Lake in California came about because I stumbled into this high desert lake on a photography workshop and so completely fell in love with it that I had to keep coming back. The problem is every time I came back, the lake was lower and lower and lower because the city of Los Angeles was exporting its water that feeds this 100 square miles, 7,000 foot elevation salt sea that is surrounded by 30 volcanoes. Very strange place. So I decided to ask for some help from my good friend Al Weber, an instructor of mine that became a friend, Don Worth, and a few other people that pitched in to gather a group of work together spanning over 100 years and 40 different photographers, and I couldn't resist putting this little video in. For generations, America's finest landscape photographers have been drawn to Mono Lake. Its spectacular features and stark beauty have been captured on film by such noted artists as Edward Curtis, Philip Hyde, Brett Weston, and Ansel Adams. And it's a very gratifying thing to think of all these fine photographers getting together, bringing their art into one fine, beautiful presentation. At Mono Lake, at the California Academy of Sciences, through October 16th. I guess the adage is, if you have Ansel saying something nice about your work, you find a way of putting it in every slideshow you do. <laughs> the show was created in 1979, opened in 1980, toured around the country where four and a half million people see it, saw it, including 750,000 at the Los Angeles County Museum of Natural History, which I felt was critically important since that's where Mono's water was going to and we needed to build a constituency for the survival of the place in that community that huge community of 11 million people. It's funny, I ended up working with one of the chief conservationists of our age, David Brower, at Friends of the Earth, who became the sponsor of this project, the nonprofit sponsor. 
And Dave and I had some differences along the way. But the fundamental thing that I learned in that process is that photography has a unique, powerful, and clarion vision to be able to call attention to a place and help, uh, and help make sure it survives. Just like Carlton Watkins' work did in the early 1860s when the Yosemite work was brought to Washington, D.C. to show Abraham Lincoln and the United States Congress to create the Yosemite Act of 1864, the fact that we gathered this work together about Mono Lake made it more difficult to destroy Mono Lake. And that is a fundamental um, ingredient, I think, of activist photography in the sense of trying to make sure those places you come to care about survive. In 1983, we get, did a catalog from the exhibit. It's now it's sold out in uh, less than a year. And we've got a few copies of the limited edition left. It is also the place where I started photographing in such a way that I began to recognize that the world was full of a much more gentle quality of light and color than I was generally seeing in work that I encountered in landscape photography. And where my pastel, my appreciation of this pastel world that we live in really did materialize. And so Mona Lake had an influence on me in many ways, and I hope this, the exhibit that I worked so hard on had some influence on Mona Lake's survival. These are some of the craters. This is uh, the Mono Crater chain at the south end of the lake. Some of the grasses out on Pooa Island. And the view into the Mono Basin and part of the lake in the middle of wintertime. We did take a number of prints back to the United States Congress to lobby for the uh, creation of the Mono Basin National Scenic Area. And that did, in fact, help the survival of the place. The next big project was on the Central Valley in California, which is where I'm from, where my friend Bob Dawson and I went back home to where we had grown up and become landscape photographers. And here's the For the last hundred years, the natural wealth of the great Central Valley made California prosper. It's one of the richest agricultural regions on Earth. Now there's a photographic exhibit exploring the transformation of this fertile landscape and the challenges to its future. The Great Central Valley Project, a portrait of California's heartland by Stephen Johnson and Robert Dawson at the Academy of Sciences, Golden Gate Park, San Francisco, now through October 12th. I've always been a believer in technology playing a role in helping out art. And so taking advantage of television's obligations to create public service announcements, we made sure we produced them about the exhibits. But the Central Valley exhibit produced a particular problem in that I was going home to understand a place that I didn't fully know growing up. And I came to understand that modern agriculture got created in the Central Valley. The growing of cotton and other crops on desert lands, the mining of oil in the Central Valley was one of the chief suppliers of oil, domestic oil production in the United States. It was one of the most changed landscapes anywhere in the country that was a non-urban place because of the complete rerouting of the water system, the major rivers of California, where the California Aqueduct, where the Central Valley Project, which we took the name from, the big uh, federal water project for the exhibit itself. It's now also a place that is enduring industrial development and suburbanization of the farmland. It's also where 25% of America's food supply is grown and 10% of the world's food supply. All of that created some unique challenges because we needed this photographic exhibit about going home to stay a photographic exhibit. And yet, as we were learning more about it, there was a story to tell that was quite profound. So we ended up creating a computer video interpretation program in 1984 to go with the exhibit that opened in 1985 that involved computer graphics, video of us in the field, stills, and these uh, very crude but effective computer graphics pulling it all together. So I began to start to understand that computers and photography had a role to play together in a way I would have never imagined would eventually come to be. We still don't know what happened to this farmer. I think he disappeared over the horizon somewhere. Here's a picture of the installation. And out of that project came my second book, on the Central Valley, done with the University of California Press. And it was coming right at a time where the Macintosh was starting to become capable of doing PostScript type, and we had some page layout software. And then eventually, this funny little program called Barney Scan XP that I started using to edit my photographs that later became Photoshop when Adobe licensed it. 
And people didn't believe at the time that I made this 256-page book all on the Macintosh, but I did. And so we ended up creating a book about how we did it, but that's a whole other story. Uh, the book came out in August of 1993, and uh, in September of 93, I got a visit by a fellow by the name of Michael Collette, who had quit his job at an instrument company, gone home, and built a digital insert for a 4x5 camera that produced images that were 140 megapixels. And so when he had that camera ready to go and ready to really see at full resolution in January of 94, I took those years of experience since the late 80s and early 90s, working with early Kodak cameras and early Leaf cameras, and suddenly I'm dealing with my 4x5 camera as a digital recording medium for the first time. And of course, the, what I decided to do was to go to every, every cliched tourist spot we could think of in San Francisco and shoot film and digital at the same time. And that became the beginnings of my National Parks project, even though I had no idea at the time. Every photograph was made with the same camera and same lens. It was an early grayscale power book we were using. And the last shot of the day became the most telling from Telegraph Hill looking out toward um, the Golden Gate Bridge, which is sort of buried in fog here. And at the intersection of Columbus and Bay Streets in San Francisco, there happened to be a Tower Records. And there is a zoom in on the 4x5 film of that shot that you just saw of the Tower Records. And then here was the digital version. And I always tell people, film died for me that day. And that was literally the last shoot I ever took film seriously as a recording medium. So I quit using film in 1994. It is a very different way of recording light. With film, we have multiple layers of silver and uh, filters that are eventually uh, not only used to separate the light into the three primary colors, but then in many cases have a dye coupling layer to create the color. Generally today, we use a Bayer pattern camera where we have intermittent sensitivity of the red, green, and blue, so we don't have full resolution in any color. Foveon worked very hard to create a chip that sensed the color from every pixel on the camera, but had its own problems. And Mike Collette built a scanning back for a 4x5 out of a very peculiar trilinear array, ironically made right here in Rochester, New York by Eastman Kodak. So the eye of this project for the, what became the better light scanning back was in fact a sensor made right here in this town. And what so floored me about that comparison between film and digital was the quality I was seeing out of the digital file so exceeded anything I had ever seen out of film that I was taken aback, impressed, blown away, scared, shocked, surprised, delighted, all of those emotions together. Because in a sense, I saw the previous 20 years of my work all dedicated to the love of what film could make in terms of images all now get thrown into this big question of what on earth have I just seen? What do I do with that? How do I take a little tiny electronic device and do what my 4x5 film had been doing? Well, that little device was making three separate 4x5 grayscale images, each filtered through a red, green, and blue sensor, and making one color photograph of extraordinary resolution in one pass across the back of the 4x5 camera. This is a picture of the whole sensor. It gave me an image quality I was shocked by, but yet at the same time, now I was carrying around not only my 4x5, absent my film holders, but I was carrying around a computer, a SCSI interface, a portable hard drive, lithium, no, not lithium at that point, lead gel batteries. <laughs> And it was an entirely different way of working. And there was only one of these cameras in existence, the hand-built one that Mike Collette had made. And so the only way I got to even try this camera to see what it was about was to go out with Mike with this hand-built camera. And it took me two months of doing that before I got a photograph that I liked. And this is the first photograph I made with the scanning bag that I was proud of as an image. This is from March of 1994. I can also tell you that the Parks Project itself, to some degree, got born out of the first Photoshop conference, which was in January of 94, which I was already scheduled to speak at, but I remember sitting in the back of the room at the keynote, which was Russell Brown, the art director of Adobe, 
having a good time poking fun at all that he loves to poke fun at. And he was showing an example of what Photoshop could do by putting himself in between Ron and Nancy Reagan with his arms around him and having tree roots grow out of his head and everybody was laughing and having a good time. And I was sitting there in the back of the room having only a few days before been completely shocked by this huge progress in the quality of digital imaging by seeing what the scanning back could deliver on the 4x5. And I kept thinking to myself, this is not what this revolution in photography is about. I've just seen a fundamental change in the history of photography. And it is not about cloning, making fun of, faking. It is a fundamental change in the way we hold light, a fundamental change in the quality of how we're capable of holding light, and that there had to be some reaction in me, I felt, to really be able to react to that. And so in the back of that room, at that first Photoshop conference with Russell Brown up making fun of all these things, I dreamed up the National Parks Project. And what I dreamed up was something that had to meet a couple of criteria. First of all, it had to be hard to do, or I wasn't interested because I had to see if this camera was real and could really be used in the way I thought it ought to be used. I had already been seduced into the idea of digital imaging as a scanning and pre-press tool. We were working uh, oftentimes with some people here in this room at Kodak to try and get the printers that could be printed from, prints that could be made from these files actually look good with some of the first dye sublimation printers like the Kodak XL7700. John Metzger, are you in the room? Hey, John. <laughs> I told you, if you didn't leave that in, I was never uh, hauling it back out again. <laughs> it, what, what was it, 200 pounds, 250 pounds? Something like that. Hi, John. Glad to have you here. <laughs> I was already convinced that there was huge advantage in pre-press for digital. I was convinced that there was a way of managing archive aspects of the photographs like removing dust spots and scratches from film. But it wasn't until this camera came along and I saw this quality of work that I became convinced that digital photography could actually replace film for me. And so the nature of the difficulty of trying to photograph outside in a moving world with a scanning camera that took three and three quarter minutes to record the scan from one side of the four by five imaging area ever so slowly to the other side while having this faith that what I wanted to do was record the real world. So I go out into the real world trying to make faithful images of a moving, living, breathing world with a scanning camera that wanted everything to be essentially dead, okay? So I understood those mismatches of things, but the quality was so seductive that I had to try. Plus, I was aware of the fact that the national parks themselves had been so tied up in the history of photography that it seemed like an appropriate place for the first major body of work with a digital camera. And so that's what we did. We went out and started making photographs. In fact, we called a press conference with the Ansel Adams Gallery to announce the project only a few months later. Now, I can also tell you that when we called that press conference, I had never been up to Yosemite to make any photographs in uh, a national park. So I do do reckless things sometimes, like commit myself to doing something that I'm not sure I can do. But then that does sort of force you to rise to the occasion and do it. So in June of 1994, we announced the project which came out of the idea and field work testing and trying to figure out how to use a scanning pack, scanning back. I got Michael Collette to build a second prototype camera, started going out by myself. We called the press conference in Yosemite, started trying to raise money and go for the first trips. And this is a little excerpt from that first press conference. I apologize that I wasn't able to go back and get the, the raw video instead of this uh, rather crude uh, window dub, but you can hear my introduction to this press conference in front of the Ansel Adams Gallery. Um, as you all know, and because you're involved in this one or another, photography is really in a state of evolution, and the evolution is dramatically escalating. Uh, if you'd asked me two years ago, I'd be carrying around a 4x5 to make digital high-resolution images of Yosemite, I probably would have laughed. But then I met Michael Collette in September, wasn't laughing at all, but uh, engineering a very 
handsome digital camera insert for any 4x5 camera. And at that point, the idea of field photography in the digital realm started to become real. That was June of 1994. It, it's funny, a lot of the things that I got questioned about initially was, well, how can you carry around all this stuff? And so I remember pointing out to them <laughs> that I'm actually not carrying anything near what somebody like Carlton Watkins carrying with his 18 by 22 inch glass plates and the wet, collodion, wet plate collodion process. And so I pair these two images frequently to show you about the biggest uh, configuration for the scanning back that we ever had compared to a wet plate collodion landscape kit on the left. You'll also see it's not very normal to see a big scuzzy cable coming out of a 4x5. And uh, the, the hard drive and power was all in this backpack, and there's my laptop. And you can see that I had to make a viewing hood for the laptop. Of course, it was made out of 100% rag board, four-ply, with linen tape on the hinges. <laughs> I was at Kenai Fjords in Alaska. And here I am at the press conference carrying that rig all on my back. Of course, I was a little younger, less gray then, and the 65 pounds was a little easier to carry than it is today. We started carrying solar cells with us to help retard the battery charge, or I should say the battery discharge. Here we are at Kenai Fjords National Park. You notice I say we when I'm talking about me and the camera, but it started to feel like there was the companion that had its own mind sometimes, too. And a close-up of it, so you see it's my CNRX with the scanning back plugged in. And often on the edge of cliffs to a point I didn't quite imagine here in 1996, where I would, two years later, knock a brand new prototype power book off the edge of the Grand Canyon. But that's, an, that's another story. The SCSI cable held. It only went two feet, and I made that momentary judgment not to go after it, because if I hadn't, I don't think I'd be standing here right now. The equipment is always replaceable. Your body is not. You have to remember that at moments of crisis. And that week before the press conference, I made my first photographs of Yosemite. And I never really thought I'd show a photograph of either Yosemite Falls or Half Dome in public. It had sort of been done before. But when I saw the dynamic range that I was able to hold in this photograph of Half Dome from Glacier Point, literally in the infrared, 14 stops of dynamic range, something spoke to me in a way that made me want to show the photograph. That same weekend, I made a photograph that I'll also show later on in a reference to resolution, some wildflowers at Foresta coming back from a wildfire. And so I'm going to go through a few photographs in the project here. Death Valley, just after I dropped the 4x5 onto the pavement and broke the front lens standard and then quickly had to substitute the filter standard for the front lens standard, trying not to get angry at myself or curse at the world as my eight-year-old daughter was standing there right next to me when I dropped the 4x5. Haleakala on Maui. And I can tell you, this is the single most obvious place any human could make a photograph from of Haleakala because it's right behind the visitor center. <laughs> I can also tell you, at 10,000 feet, the wind was such that it was the only place that the camera wouldn't blow over. Okay. Kenai Fjords in Alaska, the Exit Glacier. You may have seen a print of that out front. Acadia National Park in Maine on a misty morning. I submitted this, among other national parks, photographs to an art director who was uh, selling photographs, they thought, to a Silicon Valley company who had just renamed all of their conference rooms after national parks. We thought, this is perfect. High-tech, national parks. She liked the selections, but she did say, but Steve, there is a problem with one of them. It's all washed out. There must be something wrong. <laughs> I said it's called fog. And, uh, I'm not sure how good the communication was between me and that art director. Acadia National Park on Cadillac Mountain. New Earth at Volcanoes National Park in Hawaii. New Earth in the process of being formed as lava is pouring into the Pacific Ocean. Now, you remember I said that the initial scan times were 3 minutes and 45 seconds? Well, this is a sped up version of the camera down to two minutes and 30 seconds. 
But you'll see in a few minutes when I talk about some of the challenges of the project, what it looked like to my naked eye and what it looked like to the camera's view of time. When we climbed Mount St. Helens on my 40th birthday in 1995, from the south rim looking into the crater, the lava dome, Mount Rainier beyond, the timber from the explosion 15 years earlier still floating in Spirit Lake, and although it's hard to see on the slide, landslides happening around and steam coming out of the lava dome. In fact, we first set up the camera right on the rim, and then we kept hearing this noise, and then looking down in the crater, noticed dust and rocks coming down, and decided to move back from the edge another six feet or so. And fortunately, we've got video of all of that, so it's contributing to a project I'll mention a little while later. A photograph I was determined to be good because I fell through a frozen lake getting to it, and that just made me all that much more determined to get to the other side and make the photograph. Although it started out in color, but the ice had algae in it, and it was kind of putrid looking. Green ice just wasn't working. And I was so determined for this photograph to have a role because I had gone through that process of breaking through the ice and being wet and a little scared for a couple of hours out there by myself. But eventually it occurred to me, why keep the color if the color has nothing to do with why I'm liking the photograph? So I decided it was a black and white image. And as it turned out, this photograph was the first digital image ever used by Friends of Photography in their Fine Art Print Collectors program. And that was about in 1996 or 97. I didn't have a way of making a digital print of it that I felt would be archival and therefore appropriate for the print collector's program. So I made a film recorder 4x5 negative, and we made the edition on gelatin silver paper at the time. This was uh, made at that press conference as well. You know, I'm, I'm reaching into my brave side here to show you a photograph of Yosemite Falls, because, you know, you're not... That's been done, right? This was made during the press conference. The water is flowing down. And just at this point in the scan, this was at three and three quarter minutes, the wind started up from the east, which is a very unusual direction for the wind in California, or in Yosemite Valley. It was at the press conference, and Ansel's son, Michael, was there. And he's leaning over the power book, looking into the screen, seeing the image start to come in. And he shook his head and said, Ansel would have just loved this. You know, I didn't ask him why he called his dad Ansel, but I, you know, that's a family relations thing I'm not going to get into. But just as he said that, the wind came up from the east and started blowing this water out to the other side. And Ansel's granddaughter, Sarah, was there. And I think it was her that said, wow, that was weird. I wonder if he heard. So I don't know what the relevance of that is. Canyon lands a year later. The camera is natively infrared. The infrared cutoff filter that are mostly on our cameras nowadays was not laminated onto this sensor in the form that Michael ordered it from Kodak. And so when we made a color photograph, we had to put a blue-green piece of glass in the light path. But when we wanted an infrared photograph, we simply didn't put that filter in. And it was automatically a color infrared camera. And I ended up using many of the black and whites from the project from the infrared, usually from the red channel of the color infrared. But this is one I happen to like, the strange color that it came out with that completely out of balance infrared uh, saturation of the sensor in a full color rendition. This is at Crater Lake in uh, Southern Oregon. And it was very early on in the project, uh, only October of 2004. And I remember this incident looking at this photograph real well, and I'll tell you a little story about it. Uh, the backpack was sort of in a drop pack, and I had no means of keeping the computer up on anything, nor any means of looking at the screen without my 4x5 dark cloth. So the basic vision is I'm down on my knees, hunched over the power book so I can see it with the dark cloth over my head. You got the picture? I'm looking through the, the screen, this little six-inch first color power book, and I notice up top here on the photograph is Mount Shasta in Northern California. And I look back up at the horizon, and it's not there. And I go back under the dark cloth repeatedly, back and forth, looking at the fact that this scanning back camera has recorded something I can't see with my eyes. 
My hair is about down to the middle of my back in a big long ponytail. I'm hunched over this backpack with this dark cloth like this, appearing to be praying to the laptop back and forth a number of times when on one rising up, I have this sense I'm no longer alone up here. And I turn around and there's a semicircle of Japanese tourists standing behind me. <laughs> watching me uh, worship this power book. And uh, it was one of those telling moments in my photographic career. And one fellow on uh, the side of it was very astute. Again, this was 1994. He said, ah, digital camera. So he was probably involved in something. But I, I do really love how infrared captures things. This is in the Olympic National Park in the rainforest. And of course, people that haven't seen black and white infrared just immediately think this is snow, quite understandably but it's the healthy green foliage of the rainforest. And again, a testament to tenacity. The day was a wipeout for me. I got nothing. I packed up and was leaving the park, but I kept looking, and then I noticed out the side this one little stand of trees. It was starting to get dark and starting to rain. I set up anyway, and I got the only photograph of the day I really cared about, and one ultimately I cared about a great deal. So we've got a few infrared photographs here. This is of the Merced River Canyon in Yosemite, just where the glacier ended in Bridalville Falls Falls, Falls Falls. And this is one I couldn't help experimenting with, where I took the infrared and a regular color photograph and combined the two of them, just to see what a really strange animal might see. I can tell you that the, the visual aesthetic impacts on my work has been uh, fundamental to how I see and how I think. And I'm gonna go through a few of those things uh, in the next couple of minutes. The first one is having the laptop out there to see the image rendered onto the screen was a remarkable transformation in taking that three-dimensional perception of space that my eyes always have and turning it into a fixed two-dimensional rendition that the single lens of the camera has, stripping away all perceptions of depth. And I show this image in that particular context because for the design of this image to really work for me, I needed this succession of cliffs to kind of flatten out and become a piece of graphic design rather than a depiction of depth. And no matter how much I closed one eye or looked through the ground glass, it just wasn't quite the same as seeing this independent image rendered. And that has made a big difference in the way I photograph with regards to perceptions of depth, the way space is rendered, and the way I'm able to study composition in a way I just couldn't before. I can also tell you that having an interface out in front of my uh, photography out in the field that has not only a histogram like we've become accustomed to in uh, digital SLRs nowadays, but having a curve editor present and the ability to balance the color on site so I could see the rendition of the scene as I chose to interpret it while looking at the real scene. That has given me an amazing capability to really move my photographs closer and closer and closer to what I saw. And given my own prejudices that I talked to you about of trying to be witness to the wonder that I saw rather than trying to change it into something else, that has been a fundamental empowerment of my work. And then the ability to actually balance the sensor in the camera before the photograph is even made. I would scan a gray card, ask it to auto balance on that gray card, and it would actually change the electronic gain on the sensors. So in a pre-digital um, part of the workflow, it was balancing the sensors recording of the light to the quality, the color of the light that was present. It's the most color accurate work I've ever made in my entire life. And not the same at all of having the ability to shoot raw and color balance after the fact. A capability I am deeply grateful for, and I teach all the time, but it's still different to have it balanced right out of the camera with a degree of assuredness that literally, even to this day, is unprecedented. No other camera can do that. And the obvious application is normally daylight color film and the shade would look all blue. You balance the color of the light for the sense, for balance the color recording settings of the sensor for the light that's actually present, and suddenly the color looks like your eyes have adjusted to into that ambient blue of the shade. 
That idea of seeing a studied and finished photograph on site has been something that has been extraordinarily valuable to me as I've moved around making these national parks photographs. But there's been some interesting gotchas, challenges, opportunities, or however you want to look at it, because a scanning back that takes minutes to make a photograph is not going to see the scene like my human experience of time, nor like how we've been used to photography fracturing the human experience of time into these split seconds. We've come to think that a photograph represents a slice of a second, even though that's not at all our experience of time as a human being. Here I was presented now with 8,000 slices of, second, of a second assembled into a single image, and time became a whole different medium. Where, a succession, where uh, cumulus clouds got rendered in this stretched out two and a half minute version of those clouds. I wouldn't call it manipulated, but it's certainly weird, and it's an absolutely accurate photograph to this very peculiar eye that the scanning back is. And it made me go back and look at a lot of early 19th century work, things that we've come to treasure, and think about how all through photographic history, the technology itself has made marks on the way the photograph looks. And here is yet another one of the time being marked into the process. And in some cases, actually recording a rhythm of surf that never existed in my human experience of that surf coming in, but did exist in real time given this very strange perspective. And moving water has its own definition of reality. In fact, at Point Lobos this day in 1998, I was having a lot of fun with this very strange water. And one piece of it looked like this. Now, of course, I couldn't help but look at this as a problem at the time, especially if wind hits the camera, because as we all know, a 4x5 is basically a sail waiting to get knocked around. We've all experienced that that have used view cameras outside. Well, now, if it hits the camera during the exposure, I get this one little sort of what I've come to call wind jitter in the file. And then I have to take another one, and sometimes another one. And so it can be very frustrating. Trees swaying in the wind are not at all a pretty sight unless you want to imitate A Starry Night by Vincent van Gogh. Okay? <laughs> but I came to understand that there was something intrinsically interesting about this as well. And so at this point in time, I'm not only not worrying about it, I'm sort of saying, you know, it's sort of a mark of the time that the photograph was made with this very peculiar eye, and maybe there's actual value in that bizarreness. Maybe. I'm sort of a conservative guy, photographically. <laughs> so we also started thinking about how we're seeing space and time with this new um, digital technology. And one of them, of course, is the ability to render scenes in 3D and I started thinking, well, this photograph is understandable from a purely photographic perspective, but what if we could start to model what the space is to give the viewer a chance to understand the context of where the photograph was made? So they not only see my interpretation in a two-dimensional single scene, but they can start to move around and understand what that scene looked like in and of its, uh, in, in and of its own location. And that, of course, with the advent of GPS that I've been carrying for most of the park's project, gave me another thought that maybe every, all of the information that could be derived from the place by knowing when and where it was made gives us additional information that we can use to understand the context in which the photograph was made. But sometimes, just the location alone gives us some remarkable information so that when I show you this photograph of Mount St. Helens, I can then render out an aerial scene in Google Earth and tell you, well, I was standing right there. And you can sort of then see the point of view from which I was looking. Our ability to communicate and understand the Earth is dramatically expanding. As a landscape photographer, I can't resist the idea to contextualize the nature of where the photograph was made even as in my photographic compositions, I'm sometimes leaving things like scale, distance, vague on purpose to force the viewer into an interpretation of what they're looking at. That doesn't mean I'm not willing to tell them. I just want the initial seduction to be based on purely visual information. 
not necessarily that other information. And then, of course, the resolution, which I found to be just extraordinary, started becoming uh, uh, very weird because this photograph of Foresta, I had sold a little 8 by 10 inch print to, my, uh, to a student of mine, and she came back a couple of months later and said, I love the, the deer in that photograph. And I said, what deer? And she goes on to point out the deer sitting at the base of this tree right here, staring at me. So then we started pouring over other photographs, including some of those ones of San Francisco, and found out a lot of things we didn't know that were in there. And I'll show you a few other examples of resolution. We've got a few things here, including a zoom on that Kenai Fjords, and a couple of blow-ups of that half-dome shot, so you see what it looks like when we zoom in one-to-one. -one. 140 million pixels, 6,000 by 8,000 pixels of real information is pretty amazing in terms of what you can see. This happens to be a blend of visible light and infrared in this particular photograph. And this one of arches is the one I use uh, a lot to try and explain how if you were really nuts, you could probably count every leaf in this entire photograph from Arches National Park. So here's sort of the journey of the parks project here. I made this just for this talk tonight, so you'd see sort of the sequence of the places we ended up going over mostly about four to five years, and it eventually stretched into the early 2000s as well. Makes me tired looking at it, actually. In 1995, we adapted a digital panoramic adapter, which basically turned the 4x5 so in November of 1995, we made the first gigapixel images, despite others' claims to having done it much later. And basically, it mounted the 4x5 on a motorized base and rotated the whole camera, giving us a unique option, in some cases, to put on a long lens and still have a wide-angle view. So I ended up coining the term a telephoto wide-angle for panoramics with a long lens, which, of course, you're perfectly capable of doing as you stitch photographs together with long lenses. Okay. Didn't occur to me before I needed it for a particular photograph, which I think is often the case. So we built a room with a surround image, a 27-foot long print, and uh, these have been fun. It was, it was stepping into this Golden Gate image when we first put, put it in a circle when I came up with the term immersive photography. It was later quoted in the press, and the guy took credit for coming up with the term uh, a few months later after he was standing there next to me when I said it. In any event, here's a few more from the National Parks Project. So I started adding the panoramics, which were inherently less about visual studies and more about spaces. I have a hard time with panoramics because I can't compose them like I want to do composition. But in general, that dynamic range and the ability to see detail has allowed me to take something that I'm convinced about our experience of the real world, where we expect the photograph to encompass our memories, glancing around the scene, iris opening up, closing down, sort of the detail we take in as we look around, and now I've got this resolution and dynamic range that allows me to actually do that. And those demands for a very wide dynamic range, accurate color to match our memory, and extreme detail were all addressed by this camera in a way that surprised me. However, you can imagine there were a lot of challenges along the way, like rain. And so when it started raining, I started covering things up. A lightning storm out at the Grand Canyon did some interesting things to my hair. <laughs> and the smell of ozone was in the air for sure. And the scanning back does weird things with moving water, as you can see from these leaves at Shenandoah. But the opportunities were huge. The ability to see the image no matter where I am, looking at it, studying it. Eventually, we started carrying a printer with us so I could make prints of the scene on site while I'm still there. We've been blessed by lots of great press in various magazines, including uh, the one that Eliza mentioned from Folio Magazine, saying that the publication of my work in the 1997 Life Magazine issue with Michael Jackson and his baby on the cover. Um, fortunately, I was buried in the back of the magazine where uh, Apple had a full-page ad on the back with Gandhi, so, you know, take that. It wasn't my work they were praising. It was the first all-digital workflow that they were recognizing. So I should point that out. 
And I think I've got a few more images, including some things about preview exhibitions of the project at various places, including trade shows where we've built basically art galleries in the middle of a trade show. And the book that's underway, which I'll go through pretty quickly as we're uh, running short on time. I'll show you a few spreads from it. That's a full mock-up I've done on the Indigo Press at HP Labs. One of the challenges is the maps to show people where the park is. And I was very unsatisfied with traditional notions of mapping. So I took a DEM map of California and posed an outline of the park, took a satellite image, put the photograph, put the map on the satellite image, and then lifted the park above a scaled back version of the landscape around it. I think it works. Really like it, actually. <laughs> And then as we're previewing how we're going to build the exhibit, we're talking about how to do the panoramic displays, lurking back, lurking back, harkening back to the Central Valley Project where we had the computer video program in the middle of the exhibit. There's been a few strange things along the way. This was in the Oakland Museum where they had my camera, my laptop, and I felt like I should be dead if they're going to be exhibiting my work, <laughs> my tools, and my craft. That's the panoramic adapter, journals that I kept along the way, which is the basis for the text in the book and the record-keeping uh, thing as well. Posters we've done from the project. I'll show you a few. And of course, we're building an electronic disk, which I just happen to have one page from that happens to be the, the trip that Peter Susi was along with me on in Acadia, Maine. For, for, for me, what digital photography has done and the real change that makes it unlike any photography we've ever done before in terms of capabilities is what I was moving toward in my film-based era, and that is a better ability to record our own perceptual experience. And we know what the idealized views look like. We've seen them in landscape paintings and all sorts of so-called enhanced photographs for a long time. In fact, we see some awfully weird renditions of the national parks that are out there. But the real world, I think, is compelling almost beyond belief. I think the nuance, subtlety, and incredible human connection we feel with our hearts when we're out moving around the real world and trying to take it for what it is and see it for what it is and trying to hold it for what it is is the most compelling reason I can think of to be moving about the world with a camera. It does suggest an empowerment because we can make a difference with our work especially with some of these new digital tools. This is Maury Point in Pacifica, where I live, which we made sure got into the national parks, among other tools, with this brochure we made, raising $100,000 locally for the purchase of the land. Or as I mentioned earlier, actually taking photographs back to lobby for the passage of legislation. Perhaps a bit more difficult in this age of budget constraints than it was in 1983 and 84, but still, the voice and clarion call that a photograph can make is something that should never be overlooked when you're concerned about the preservation of land. And we also need to keep in mind with the national parks, they are only one act of Congress and one presidential signature away from going away at any point. There is nothing in the Constitution guaranteeing the preservation of these places. It is only one or two combinations of circumstances. A president that doesn't care, and a, or I should say a Congress that doesn't care, and a president that's willing to sign off on it, and the parks are sold off. We need to remember that and continue to build this national heritage rather than stripping it away. Now that I've talked about politics for a moment, I'll show you a few more photographs. <laughs> Kenai Fjords National Park in Alaska. Yellowstone, Mammoth. Now, the way we had to adjust the screen, I ended up losing my highlights here. So I'm sorry about that. Ooh, a cringe. Uh, petrified Forest in Arizona, White Sands, New Mexico. Also the Petrified Forest, a place called Blue Mesa. Kenai Fjords, the photograph you saw from Volcanoes National Park. White Sands, New Mexico. Big Bend, Texas, I would never have gotten down there if I hadn't done this project. The Badlands, Arches. And then I was carrying at the time also a DCS 460 from Kodak in the mid-90s to document the project, or when I couldn't use a scanning back, 
to photograph an aerial from, of Point Reyes National Seashore. Our years later, coming in for a landing at Miami and looking at Biscayne National Park with my Canon camera. Or the silver sword on top of Haleakala where the wind was blowing too hard for the 4x5 to be anywhere but hidden behind the visitor center. Or King's Canyon with a DCS 14N, the last I used of the Kodak cameras. And Zion. Or even more recently, the blue-gold mixture of color temperatures at White Sands, New Mexico. The last book was the on-digital photography book that Eliza held up. The books in print include the Atmona Lake catalog, the Great Central Valley, making a digital book about how that book was made, and the on-digital photography book that I guess now is technically out of print since we've sold the last copies. And the National Parks book in the works. If you want to be in touch, you can subscribe to my newsletter on the website, and you get one on email that connects you to that every month. I do workshops all over the country, including out of my studio in Pacifica near San Francisco, as well as for various institutions here and there. And here's how you can learn more about the project at sjphoto.com. Sorry we had a limited amount of time tonight, but I hope that uh, you enjoyed the talk. Thanks very much. We, we will, at the book signing, have the mock-up of the National Parks book out there to look at as well. Steve, thank you. That was really a wonderful blend, I think, of technology and art. And I know that many of you here speak that language of technology, so I'm sure you really appreciate it as well. Um, we do have a few moments for some questions, so uh, if you want to wait for me to get the mic to you, just because we are recording this um, for a podcast. So who would like to be the first person to ask a question? Uh, just before you uh, asked if was it John Metzger, if he was here, yeah, uh, there was a term that you threw out, and I don't remember whether it had to do with a camera or a printer, but I, I just I, I, I can't remember what the term was. Die sublimation, die sublimation printer. That was some of the first of the digital printers that were around. Kodak was making them initially as a video printer to print TV screens. Turns out people didn't have a whole lot of interest in that. <laughs> Uh, and so by the time I was working with them seriously, um, they had made them into uh, 10 by 10 inch printer capable. It's a ribbon of dye that through heating elements as heads gets sublimated or gassed out onto a receiving paper. It was usually cyan, magenta, and yellow. Black got added. In fact, they had one of the most splendid black ribbons that were ever, I've ever seen in a dye sublimation. The prints still look good after all this time. So that was the process. They're still used in portrait studios today and in little portable uh, printers because they're so quick. But that was the printing technology I was referring to. Anybody else got any questions? Hey, Steve. Um, what you've been doing has been very much in taking, to the, taking advantage of the digital technologies to do what has been very much the, the tradition of landscape photography. Mm -hmm. We're starting to see some new technologies, uh, like the Iknos camera, which enable capturing of full resolution um, at multiple focal lengths, allow manipulation of the image after the fact to choose your focal length, even allow the viewer of the image to change their perspective. And I'm, I'm sure you've looked at some of these cameras and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on how it might change the nature of photography. Well, that particular camera is using a technology called coded aperture imaging that has no lens, but multiple pinholes to record the image. And the way they're decoded determines what's in focus and what isn't. And so it, the software allows you to change the focus points. It doesn't change your perspective, it just changes your focus. For me, what I would like to see come out of that is ability to have everything sharp because I'm sort of of that IP64 group that I don't see any reason you'd ever throw anything out of focus. I work really hard to get everything sharp. Um, so I'm not a fan of selective focus. However, what I think that that's just a software decision. There could be ways engineered to get the whole thing out sharp. Uh, I'm very optimistic about where photography is going in terms of its ability to record. I'm very pessimistic about its uh, people's use of it to lie. So that's, you know, we're, we're coming along a similar path here with very different results. But 
To quote Ansel Adams on this very issue, he said, photographs don't lie, photographers do. And so it's a choice people make. And I would encourage you all to at least, if you've heavily manipulated an image, by all means, do anything you want in Photoshop, but let your viewer know what they're looking at, to let them know it's really a pixel graph, not a photograph. I know it's a painful term for some people to hear. <laughs> it's just one I made up. <laughs> Any other questions? Okay. Did you get any response from your pictures when they were, I think that was the hall at Congress? Yeah, we passed the Mono Lake Basin scenic area. In fact, we had a reception for the bill uh, in one of the congressional hearing rooms and a number of senators came. It was co-sponsored by both California senators, the Democrat Alan Cranston and the Republican Pete Wilson. So it had bipartisan support, even with the Southern California senator in the former mayor of San Diego, Pete Wilson. Um, so it was not as hard as it would be today to get such a bill through. But what it did is it gave federal recognition to this now abandoned uh, lake area of where the lake had dropped, because there was no ownership technically to that area. And it claimed federal ownership, which gave us a stronger case in court where we were suing the city of Los Angeles. By we, I mean the nonprofits involved, like the Audubon Society and the Mono Lake Committee, to uh, say, look, the federal government has now recognized the scenic values of this place. We cannot let this place die. And so it, it became something that the photographs were very instrumental in, in the passage of that bill. What role they had in the larger in issue of winning hearts and minds, I think it had some role in that. I don't know that it had much role in the legal case, but I can tell you my first experiences with Adobe Illustrator was making the maps of what the lake would look like for the lawsuit because I was going to be determined to contribute to making sure the case was made. And the attorney for uh, the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power got quite chewed out by the chief of the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power when he turns to him in the middle of a court hearing and say, they better never have better graphics than us again. <laughs> And we did every time. <laughs> so thanks for your question. Oh, by the way, that exhibit is on permanent display in sampled form at the US Forest Visitor Center at Mona Lake. And during that visit, I got to look at the blueprints and choose where I wanted that gallery. It was a privilege, I can tell you that. I hope I can convey my question in an understandable manner. Um, if I take a digital photograph and with Photoshop, I change the, the hue, I change the color, I change the, the brightness. Am I lying at that point in time? Uh, I, I think that's a very good question and it's a very controversial thing to lay any sort of hard lines about because I couldn't tell you at which point you are so distorting what you saw that is no longer a viable or a accurate representation of what you saw. And so rather than say, no, you can't do anything. I prefer to look to what I would do in the darkroom. I would lighten or darken an area. I would try and color correct it to look like it looked as best I can remember. If there was a color cast in the shadows, I would try and burn or dodge with a color filter to get rid of that. So for me, the craft of trying to make it accurate is no small matter. I can't tell you what constitutes a lie. I'm not meaning to put myself on that kind of a, uh, a soapbox. But I think we all know that we look at a lot of images that have been dramatically changed and then being passed off as what was there. And the greatest devaluation of the value of a photograph is that when something remarkable is then seen and captured, people immediately assume it's been faked. There is this wonderful photograph that a ranger caught of some deer in the middle of a stream in the middle of a wildfire. And this ranger caught it. The deer were really there seeking refuge from the wildfire. And everybody assumed it had been faked. What kind of an age in the appreciation of photography are we if we so randomly just fool with the truth to the degree that we devalue the very veracity that made us love photography to begin with? We don't love it for what it can be made into. We love it because it represents something real, because we still have that faith that what we see was actually there. Yes, it's a selection from that larger reality, like any story you told would also be a selection from the larger reality, but it can be a truth that I think is as true as any truth can ever be. 
And in that sense, it is an extraordinarily valuable asset that I think we risk losing as that fundamental belief of what a photograph is by messing with things to the point that people are fooled into thinking something looked a certain way that it really didn't look at all. And you have to make that judgment, I can't. But I don't think my photographic talent has anything to do with my skills in Photoshop. That's darkroom skills. And it's not about trying to change it for me, it's about trying to be faithful to it. So that's probably the best answer I can get. And I think that's a wonderful place to end. I'm sorry we have to cut off questions, but we will continue in the cafe. Please join us, and thank you so much for being here. Thank, thank you, you all for coming. Well. It's an honor to be here. Thank you, Elijah, so much. Thank you.